0: Going to wait for him to come out? Yeah. Mm, It'll close for another hour or so. It's raining pretty hard. Yeah, that's right, it is, isn't it? You know, it just happened, I... got a bottle of pretty good rye in my pocket. I'd a lot rather get wet in here. Well... Looks like we're closed for the rest
1: of the afternoon. So you wanna watch a movie, but you don't know which. Choosing the one can be a bitch. But Jared and Drew have affected the art. So sit back, relax, and trust the dark. It's Dartboard Movie Night. What's going on, everyone? I'm Drew. And I'm Jared. Welcome to Dartboard Movie Night, the podcast where we put twenty movies on a board, throw a dart at it, and let the fates decide. This week we're sticking with a major entry in film history as we delve into what some would call the greatest entry in the subgenre of film noir. It's 1946's The Big Sleep, starring Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, and directed by Howard Hawks.
0: The Big Sleep, dude. An OG. A Dartboard Original. A Dartboard Original. We'll we'll obviously get into it, but one I really didn't know a ton about. Really glad to have watched it and very excited about talking about it with you man.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to talk about it too. We'll we'll get into kind of why it got on the board and also just my background with film noir because it's definitely something that is uh big in in my film love but
0: spoiler alert drew is a film noir dork loves it super fan
1: (laughs) yeah i'm i'm definitely like i'm realizing how under viewed i am on it like despite my love of the genre but um yeah yeah we'll get into that more as we get into the big sleep but first uh let's do a little board review let's see where we're at right now and i was thinking you know we kind of teased out the idea of you doing the board review uh, once in a while.
0: Yeah. I was thinking you should run through this board this time. Is today the day? I think today's the day. So the current board at number one, we have, you can count on me at number two, X machina at number three, the right stuff. Number four, tonight's movie, the big sleep number five, operation condor. Number six, Anomalisa number seven, Amadeus, Number eight, Pi. Number nine, Days of Heaven. Number 10, The Limey. Number 11, The Hateful Eight. Number 12, The Straight Story. Number 13, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Number 14, The Karate Kid. Number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Number 16, Dirty Harry. Number 17, The Blair Witch Project. And number 18, The Waking Life. 19, Strange Days. And 20, The Terminator. Fucking stumbled on the Blair Witch got me i was feeling so good about myself you also that. threw there the went. waking life in
1: but you know what it's okay you're oh you're, yeah you, i i threw that at you last minute but i was just i as i was putting together the intro i was like today we should throw that to jerry i like it dude i like
0: i uh, do great idea man i loved it
1: you want to give us a quick streaming check there on the big sleep
0: absolutely uh so unfortunately at time of recording anyway it's not free to stream anywhere but it's very easy to find in kind of the traditional sort of pay-to-rent styles. So, you know, your, Am- your Amazons and yada, yada, yada. Should be able to track it down. And I don't want to spoil my opinion on it too soon, but I think it's definitely worth it. Like, if, you, if you're curious to check this movie out, I say go for it. Go rent it at your local library. Yeah, dude, it's probably there for sure. But as you
1: mentioned, you know, this is an OG from the board. This is one of the few the proud remaining OGs of the dartboard that we put together at the beginning of this show. We're down to four, including this movie. So we'll be down to our final three as of the end of this
0: show. I will be sad to see some of these OGs go, but also excited to watch them and hit them. And this was when we did these OGs, really most of the movies neither of us had seen. And that was kind of fun, you know, and I think we'll do a lot more of that stuff moving forward. Well, you know, it's it's funny,
1: like, I I mean, as I was prepping for this, you know, this week is my week to put something on the board. I was looking through, you know, my list of like what I could bring on. And I was thinking to myself, we've done a lot of movies recently that one of us has seen. um, And it's usually only one of us that hasn't. But I looked back at the board right now. And the vast majority of them, I feel like are things that neither of us have seen at this point. So it's actually the board's looking really good right now in terms
0: of that. It's a good look, it's sexy board, much like this film.
1: Overall score right now 22 to 16 and a half, uh 22 for me, 16 and a half for Jared. Slingblade thrown in that half point there.
0: Just the anchor I will never shake. Never. What a drag.
1: What a drag. I should also mention as far as streaks go up until this week, I was on a three movie tear. So we almost had a fourth there to tie my record. But, uh, but yeah, you got the big sleep to to knock me I got off. The
0: big sleep and O G.
1: That brings up the traditional question here, Jared, original dartboard member mm-hmm. number four, the big sleep. How did it get on the board?
0: As anyone who listens to this show knows, we are like huge Paul Thomas Anderson fans, and one of my favorite ways to discover films is to hear directors that I love talk about the movies that inspired either a specific project that they're working on or even like their whole approach to, to filmmaking. This one is more, it seemed to me anyway, to be more directly related to Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice. That movie has kind of really sneakily climbed ranks for me it used to be like a movie I really didn't respond to on first and second viewing, but it has just grown and grown on me. And it's now like it's probably top three, top four for me of his movies. And around the time he was doing press for Inherent Vice, So this was probably 2014 or so, I would guess. And he mentioned The Big Sleep and how this movie is just so confusing and you don't really know what's happening at all but it's so enjoyable still. So I had that in my head, and when we were making the original board, I was like, that just sounds kind of interesting to me. Mm -hmm. I don't know anything outside of the fact that Humphrey Bogart is in it, and it's confusing. I saw some critics talk about the confusion too, so this was not just like a Paul Thomas Anderson feeling about this movie. It is kind of like, it seemed unanimous that like, it's impossible to follow, but it doesn't matter. And I was very intrigued by that. I mean,
1: the movie barely even makes sense. I mean, there are there are like entire there are bits of the plot that don't connect and and even contradict each other. So like it, it's it's meant to to kind of just be like I have no idea what the hell is going on. I mean, well, partially meant and partially not. We'll get to the production of it because there are some reasons for for that uh, discrepancy. But
0: yeah, after seeing this movie. It became clear why it was such an influence on Inherent Vice, and I definitely saw its fingerprints all over the place. And if anyone out there has not seen Inherent Vice, I would definitely recommend it. But you should know going into it that it is kind of like this where it is very confusing, almost intentionally so. And it's really hard to keep up with and follow what's happening. And it's another detective story. And I think, it, I really think it helps to know that going into a movie. Because I did not know that the first time I saw Inherent Vice. I went in fresh, as I normally do when a filmmaker I love releases a new film. And I was just so confused and I was having a really hard time following it. And it kind of frustrated me. Had I known going into it to just like, hey, don't don't think about it too much. Like, don't worry about it. Just roll with it. I think it would have been a more enjoyable experience. And it kind of leads me to a question, Drew. I wanted to kick around with you for a little bit here. And it's like, when is confusion in a film okay? Because a lot of times, movies that are difficult to follow or confusing can really frustrate me. And Mm -hmm. like I said, the first viewing of Inherent Vice had some of that in it. More recently, I think of a film like Tenet. You know, Mm -hmm. Christopher Nolan is a filmmaker that Drew and I adore – but I did not really respond to that specific film because I found it so difficult to figure out what was going on. And it frustrated me. Not to jump too far ahead about my feelings on this film, but this film I also could not follow and it didn't seem to matter. And I, I, I was having a hard time figuring out the distinction. And I don't think it's just that I knew it going in because I also knew that about Tenant. That was kind of word on the street before I saw it people were like, it's really hard to follow. It's polarizing. You either love it or you hate it, but it's Mm -hmm. confusing as hell. So that seeing the film in that framework wasn't enough to salvage that one for me personally. But I don't know. I just wanted to get your thoughts about confusion in films and how you feel about that. And are there any movies that you find annoyingly confusing? And then are there any others that are kind of more in the category of how I feel about the big sleep, which is like, it's confusing, but it's part of the fun and that's okay.
1: I mean, I think in some ways, confusion and convoluted plots and and even just outright not making sense is in some ways a, a characteristic of film noir in general. It's not always the case by any means, but, and, and, you know, we can get into to noir a little bit more as we we get deeper into the conversation, but I mean, a lot of people even argue that noir isn't a definable genre because there aren't like these key things that show up in every movie. There's a lot of things that show up in a lot of these these movies that would be called noir, but very few of the tropes that you talk about as like a film noir trope show up in all of them. It's kind of, noir is a vibe. And that's what I would describe these kind of convoluted, you know, impossible to understand films as they're all vibes. You know, to your point, I think... If you go in with that as an expectation, I think it can can make the viewing experience better, but the best versions of this, as in the big sleep, are where you go in not knowing that necessarily, and it doesn't matter, and And it's something intangible. Uh, I don't know if it's like a thing that I can necessarily pinpoint as like, this is why this works versus this doesn't. You know, the inherent vice connection is is perfect because it's the exact same thing where it's just like, why are these characters talking together now? What what is this person's involvement? Why why is he going to this location? What happened there? Doesn't fucking matter.
0: Doesn't matter. And it's like what what lead is what lead led him here? And you're totally right. It's like don't worry about it. The filmmakers know why he's there. You don't really have to know. Just or watch what e- happens. Even if
1: they don't. It, it like yeah. <laughs> I think the reason that you watch a movie like this is like I said the vibes like the the moodiness the atmosphere the 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 dialogue the snappy you know banter that the characters have uh the the costumes the the lighting like all of that stuff it just it creates this mood and it's intoxicating and that's how i felt about this movie generally was just like this movie's intoxicating none of it makes fucking sense at all but and it, I, it just matter. works. It works.
0: Yeah. It's so bizarre to me. I really, I, I, I agree with you. It's really difficult, if not impossible, to pinpoint how the movie is so successful at making me not care that I don't know what's going on, but care very much about the movie. Mm-hmm. It's such a bizarre experience in a lot of ways. And it's such a beautiful way, in my opinion. Um, I did want to ask too, before you went in and watched it, did you know that it was confusing? Had you heard that or did you go in just, oh, it's a noir and you hadn't heard tell of the confusing, confusing nature?
1: Well, I didn't know the extent of it by any means. I didn't know that it was going to be that inherent vice type where it's just like, literally like the, these connection points don't exist. Like it's just like scenes that are disconnected and you're like, you have no idea why things are happening necessarily. I didn't realize it was like that convoluted But I definitely knew, you know, being a noir film, being kind of a detective story, it's going to have a convoluted plot in some way. I knew that there would be some element of that, even if I didn't know the extent of it.
0: Right, because like you said, that is somewhat of a trademark, even though not all the trademarks are universal across noirs, like you were saying. But that is common in noirs, that like it's a detective story, It's a bit of a whodunit. You don't really know what's happening, and that's part of the ride. Yeah,
1: it's a yarn that's going to unravel as the movie goes on.
0: Right, right. Yeah, totally. And also, I forget, you recently saw Inherent Vice for the first time just in the last couple of years, right? Do you like that movie?
1: I do. I really, really dug that movie. Um, Okay, cool. You actually made me watch that movie at one point, and uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit.
0: So, yeah, that's kind of the story of how— it came on the board. Paul Thomas Anderson recommended it. I knew it was confusing. I was like, that sounds good. Let's do it. And I think this is going to be one of those gushathons for me, man, because I loved this movie. Like yeah. the, the second it started, and I'm just into it, I was just sitting on the couch and I was just like, I am enjoying this so much it is some of the best dialogue I have ever heard in my life. I was like, Holy shit. This is so great. Like I respond so deeply to like Tarantino, like dialogue to mammoth, like dialogue. We've mentioned it on the show before. And I didn't know that out there was this script that was in my opinion, even superior to those who I oh, just, for sure I, I one that
1: clearly it, inspired guys like that.
0: Absolutely. And, and and other films too. I was getting, in the in sort of the, the rapid fire way, everything is pithy and exchanged. It was kind of reminding me of The Departed a little bit. But like if like if you look at characters like Mark Wahlberg and Alec Baldwin, the way they're kind of like jousting about. Like, oh, she's tired from fucking my father. You know, it's like back and forth. Asshole dialogue
1: that's fun and playful, and yeah, and yeah.
0: Rapid fire, mm-hmm. and so, and that that dialogue, the great dialogue starts really quick. I mean, that's, I guess that's no surprise. But, you know, he, we, we see him enter this room with this old man in a wheelchair. And he's talking about how he sustains himself with heat like a young spider. And it's just like I'm just like in love, like right away. I'm just like this is, again, one of the best written movies I've ever seen. And I was so swept off my feet from the dialogue. I think it's my favorite Humphrey Bogart performance I've seen. There are a lot of shamers for me in that realm. Someday, I'm going to put Casablanca on the board because I've actually never seen that film. But, you know, we talked about Humphrey Bogart on In a Lonely Place, a movie we both really dug on this show. And this, to me, I I like this movie even more. And it was such a good performance. And we'll get more into the details and stuff. But God damn, it's sexy, it's fun, it's it's pithy, it's a wild ride. And again, it has that magic act of like, I'm confused, but I still care and I'm not annoyed. I'm not entirely sure how they did that. And it's uh, it was kind of a, a magical for movie for me. One of my favorites we've ever covered. What did you think about it? What was your viewing situation like and how did you respond to this?
1: Well, I definitely loved it. I mean noir is just a a genre that agrees with me i just i again like like you're saying like i love when dialogue is dense and something that you can decipher but you can also just listen to the musicality of it and it just it sounds good to your ear you know so yeah that stuff all agreed with me completely and yeah i just i i had a blast with this movie I all the performances are brilliant I don't know if it's my favorite Bogart performance. I think In a Lonely Place is is outstanding, and and you do need to watch Casablanca because he is truly, truly phenomenal in that movie. I I, I love all the actors. The direction is 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 really nice and and not overbearing, and and the I, I don't know it just it. it I, it's hard to really pinpoint exactly what I love so much about this movie, but it's it's intangible. It just it again, it's all vibes, and I was a hundred percent on board with the vibes. But I want to go back to your reaction to this movie because does this make you more eager to dig into the film noir genre? Because I think like these movies are a perfect entryway for people into film history, I think there's so much fun to watch and they are something that you can you can dig into them and 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 break apart all the pieces in terms of like the lighting the the writing the you know everything like there's stuff to to digest that i think is is fairly easily digestible um for people you know modern audiences i i, I don't know this is the kind of stuff that like I love pushing people to when they say, I, "I what are old movies that I should go watch?" This is like a very easy entry way. What do you think about the genre now? Like, like do you see yourself
0: watching more of this kind of stuff? I do, and I think I mean I have always been, even though I haven't dove like super deep into it, I've always been and slightly enamored with detective stories. There's just something about them. I'm a huge, huge fan of the movie Chinatown, which I think borrows a ton from from the big sleep and noirs in general. I mean, it's what you Chinatown, would call neo
1: noir, but yeah.
0: Yeah. Chinatown like fully embraces the fact that it's a noir film and that like and it's making no it's not being bashful about its influences, I don't think. You know, it's embracing them. I love Jack Nicholson's performance in that movie, but that movie's great. I've mentioned inherent vice already. But I had this idea in my head, we it happens a lot with these older movies where I still couldn't shake the idea That for some dumb reason, I didn't think it was going to have an element of timelessness to it. And I thought it was going to be sort of cheesy. Like, I have a picture of old-fashioned noir films in my head being almost akin to, like, keep the change, you filthy animal, from home alone. You know what I mean? I expect sort of, like... Yeah, there's a dame down on the railroad tracks wants to talk to you, Sonny, or like something like with like the jazz
1: sax in the background. Yeah,
0: and 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 I even that stuff I honestly like, but uh, I was expecting to get a certain amount of that cheese. And if there are a bunch of noir films that are like to this depth in terms of its timeless quality, where it's just like, no, this isn't like. Oh, I see I see where everything came from here. This is like no, this is good on its own and also rippled out.
1: I think another of the reasons why these movies are great for modern audiences is unlike a lot of the studio pictures from that day, they have a dark edge to them and they have a mm-hmm. cynicalness that, you know, to to the the content that mm-hmm. like I think I think plays well to modern audiences. Yes. You know, like like I think when people think of like old movies, I think they think of like these big technicolor musicals and you know like stuff like that. And like that was that's really fun to go revisit too, in my opinion. But you know, I think I think people nowadays like like just naturally gravitate towards movies with this cynical edge to them. And these movies are, are pretty unique for the time in just how dark they get. And you know, like, we'll get into uh, some other stuff around the production, because I mean, this movie, part of the reason this movie doesn't make sense is because they had to make a lot of cuts from it due to the Hays Code and the Mm -hmm. ratings board at the time. You know, this was kind of the height of the Hays Code imposing its family values and traditional Christian values on the film industry. So from this area, you just don't get a lot of things that are alluding to sex and violence and murder. And, and you know, like this movie has elements of pornography and, and you know, blackmail and like like that stuff was not necessarily being made at this time yeah. outside of the noir genre.
0: Well, and that that f- funneled and channeled right into kind of defying my expectations. I did not expect the movie to be so heavy and dark and edgy. I didn't expect it to have so much bite, and I guess I had a similar reaction to in a lonely place. In a lonely place is another sure. one that's pretty dark, and it kind of surprised me, of like of like how it was just tackling these issues kind of head on. As the movie unfolds, I'm like, dude, this is like, sexy. Mm-hmm. Like this, like like this, some of the, uh, to use the parlance of their time, some of the dames in this movie are like, they are just so like. It's saucy, man. It is very saucy, and (laughs) like I get a timeless sauce, you know, a ketchup. And they and they (laughs)
1: mask it with this this playful, clever dialogue too, where it's like there's so much that's alluded to but not said.
0: Oh, dude, there's a at one point a woman in this film says to Bogart like, "You can use me anytime," and that Bogart also
1: then says like. I'd rather get wet in here.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'd, like there are just like real like sexy lines. Yeah. Also, I wanted to say too that was the cabby that says that to Bogart. Oh
1: shoot! Yeah, I was thinking the yeah. Light, no, no, the, no, 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 no. Yeah, you were just woman.
0: The bookstore woman says that the wet line, like you said, and like. But then the when she the cabby hands Bogart her card, and he's like, should. Sure day or night? And she's like, night's better. I worked her in the day. And I'm just like, oh man, that is a sexy line, man. <laughs> and again, like a lot of the older movies I've seen that have elements of romance or sexuality in them, they play it so much tighter and like straight laced. This was so much looser in terms of its approach to sexuality. There's this really good movie I saw in college I think it was called It Happened One Night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that movie's great. I'm not talking shit about that movie, but like this that is the type of romance I was kind of expecting to get. Like in It Happened One Night, we have these two characters who are like slowly falling in love as part of like a forced road trip together from like different classes and things. But there are like scenes where they're stoking those flames or them like sitting side by side in separate beds in a hotel room. And it's, like, it's just not sexy. It's Again, it's a great movie. But, like, that is adding to how surprised I was at just how fucking sexy this movie is. I think it's also uh, straight up one of the coolest movies I've ever seen. Like, I was I was thinking, I was, like, writing in my little notes and thinking about it as I was watching. this like, is this the coolest older movie I've ever seen? And then I thought about it for, like, another moment or two and was like, wait a minute. Like scrap oldest from the conversation. This is in the pantheon of coolest movies I've ever seen. Like right up with, you know, I think Reservoir Dogs is a really cool movie. You know, there's certain movies that just have an energy to them that are kind of intoxicating. I think this is, I honestly think this is one of the coolest things I've ever seen.
1: <laughs> it's definitely the the coolest I've seen Bogart be in a movie because you know, I, I mean, he's very cool in Casablanca too. Uh, I won't spoil kind of where that movie goes, but he kind of there's there's a soft spot to that character that that gets revealed. But you know, in a lonely place is just the. I mean, he's kind of just a beaten down man in a lot of ways. Like he's he's playing much more exasperated and run down than he is in this movie. This movie, he's really. It's the peak of his powers, uh, and and, it, and it's what um, Raymond Chandler, the writer of the novel that this is based on, it's what he... He was so excited when Bogart got cast. They had made one movie of his works before this called Murder, My Sweet. In that movie, Dick Powell plays the same character of Philip Marlowe, and Chandler hated that performance. He he thought it just was not the character at all. It didn't have the the you know, intensity, the, the uh, danger to it that, that he was looking for. So when Bogart got cast in this role, he was stoked. And the, re- and the reason he said was Bogart was a guy who could look threatening without a gun. And I think that that's exactly what, what he is good at in this. You believe that this man is dangerous even when he's not pointing a gun at you. And Bogart has that in spades.
0: Absolutely. And also you, you, you buy when he's not flustered as guns are thrown in his face and like in the, in the, in the really sort of life threatening situations that he finds himself in at several times in this movie. Like you buy that he's just calm, cool, collected about it. And he's just kind of like, like he's hogtied in a living room at one point where theoretically goons are getting ready to bury, you know, to dig his grave and he's just still kind of cracking wise and, and being the same calm, cool, collected guy, but I buy it. Yeah, I fully buy it, it doesn't seem absurd to me.
1: What's really interesting about Bogart is he's basically a product of the fact that so many of Hollywood's young stars got shipped off to war. Like, at this time, like, one thing that I kept seeing come up in a lot of the, the videos and, and research I was doing on this movie, is the fact that he's kind of an unconventional leading man. You know, he's not traditionally gorgeous, like he's got kind of a weird face. He's sh- on the shorter side, he doesn't like he doesn't have that imposing nature. It's all attitude with him.
0: Yeah, he and, doesn't have an elegant voice. He's kind of a mumbler. Yeah. Like he he doesn't have he, you know, he he kind of talks like uh, he's got cotton balls in his mouth or something. It it doesn't add up, but it works.
1: Well, it's funny and like when I saw Casablanca, the first time in college in in my first film course that I ever took, I was a little perplexed by the fact that he was the one that they cast as this uber cool, you know, center of this movie. Like he he didn't strike me as a leading man type. And and I hadn't ever processed that until doing this research. But just the fact that, like, these guys that were becoming leading men at this time were guys that, you know, you know, if it weren't for the war shipping off all these young men, Would probably just be character actors, side characters, you know, interesting faces that you throw in to spice up up a movie, not like the central focal point. This is the first movie I've watched with him where I got the full cool factor, I felt like. Of like, oh my God, I totally see why this guy was just like electric for audiences at this point.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, he does have... I mean, I think a lot of it goes to the strength of the words, for sure, as it, as it always does with almost any performance. But I agree. I do think, you know, one one small critique I'll throw at the film, and I'm actually really glad that it does this because those scenes are so fun. But it does stretch my imagination a tiny bit, bit far that, like, every single woman is hitting on him in this I mean, movie.
1: You say that, but, I mean, the guy was... I mean, he could. He was with every woman in Hollywood, basically. Yeah,
0: no, I get that, but that you know, that's his life being a big star, and that that all makes sense, you know. But like, I was, I had a couple times. I was like, uh, so she, like the the cabbie, is just instantly seduced, like <laughs> you know. And he does have a a swag, an uncounterable swag, and and a very uh, specific edge and confidence to him. So I get it, but like, I, I and again. I do love those scenes. I think they're some of my favorite in the movie. But it just was kind of like, oh my god, she's heading on him too. <laughs> like the two, the two girls in the, the little like offshoot casino can't wait to tell him that someone's waiting to speak to him. He you was know? a
1: sex symbol at the time, man. He I don't was, know, man.
0: It is so fun to looking back at how, like, what is dis- considered sexy culturally changes, mm-hmm. but it never fully goes away. I was asking. My roommate Bridget last night, cause we were watching the movie and she was like, uh, I asked her, like, do you find him handsome? Because, again, all these women are hitting on him. And I'm always curious about what, uh, you know, heterosexual women think of certain forms of male sexuality on screen. And she was like, oh, yeah, like it's, it's he's not handsome at all, but he has a sort of energy. You said intoxicating, just kind of talking about the, the vibe, too. And and it and his performance is totally a part of that cocktail where it is just kind of like, yeah, who is this guy? He's got like... I, I love the way he jousts with people. I think that's what is, to me, the the coolest thing about him. And one of the things I find most charismatic is, is sort of the rat-a-tat jousting that he does with male characters and female characters. Mm-hmm. He just seems like he's always kind of sneakily or outright dominating the conversation. And it's really, really cool to see.
1: It is. Um, Yeah, I I love Bogey. I I definitely have, I have a bunch on my potentials list starring Humphrey Bogart. And and it makes me more curious to throw more on there, even
0: though we've done two of his already. I'm Um, dude, I'm, I was thinking the same thing. I mean, you and I, we were talking off record about how we have an interesting idea of potentially a new category every once in a while for a new movie to the board would be a revisit, like a movie that like, I think like I got to see that again because I missed it somehow. And everyone's telling me it's great. One I'm considering for that is treasure of the Sierra Madre. I saw that once. I think I was too young. I was like, what's the big fuss and that's another movie that Paul Thomas Anderson loves and was very influential on There Will Be Blood. But other, so many other storytellers and filmmakers like Vince Gilligan and many others have referenced it. And they're just like, oh, it's like the best movie ever. So it's like, I got to revisit. So I'm like you. I've got some Bogarts, even though we've done it twice. I'm going to be putting some up in the future for sure.
1: The good news is both the Bogarts that we've covered so far have been from different filmmakers. So we're getting a little bit different views on on him as a as an actor um and treasure of the sierra madre is a john houston film and uh you know so it would be another filmmaker that we we could go into and it would be a lot different too because i mean both the ones that we've done are in in or adjacent to the noir genre I, w- I would call in a lonely place kind of a little bit of an outlier in that genre but even though it does have a lot of elements of it treasure of the sierra madre would be would definitely be a departure from that
0: yeah and and it's so cool, too, that we've seen, even though the Bogard's character is really similar in both of these films, like I think that in terms of the sort of energy they're bringing, obviously there are there are differences. But one thing that's cool, and it's to your point of the two different directors, is like we have a story like In a Lonely Place, which is all internal. It's about internal rage and paranoia and this person kind of eating themselves from the inside out. And then we have this other movie, The Big Sleep, where it's it's really all about what's going on around him. It's not so much an internal struggle in my mind. It's more like you're just along for the ride with this guy and you're viewing the world through his eyes. So they're very different, very, very different films, but both dope. Yeah,
1: no doubt. Well, I mean, I think now would be a good time to, to bring up Lauren Bacall just because yeah. Bogart and Bacall is kind of that's that's you know, a a Hollywood history kind of thing.
0: That's a power couple, right? It is, yeah. They made four Mm -hmm.
1: movies together, uh, all of them pretty big hits from what I understand. The first one they did was in 1944. It was called To Have and Have Not, and it was such a resounding success, a major success, also directed by Howard Hawks, that they paired them back up for this movie. Interesting thing to note, this movie was filmed in 1944, uh, into 1945, it was finished early 1945, but didn't get released until '46. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. Part of it was they had to do a bunch of reshoots on this. Part of it was that they the war was coming to an end, and Warner Brothers had put a bunch of money into these big war pictures that they felt like they had to get out the door before the the war was over because they were gonna you know people were gonna lose interest in war pictures after that. But anyway, this so this was their second pairing. Lauren Bacall was 19 or 20 when they filmed this movie, weirdly. She looks a lot older. She looks like she, she's she got the gravitas of like a 30-year-old, but she's... Yeah, she
0: has the elegance of like a woman in her 30s. That's yeah. shocking to hear. I, I I did not know that.
1: Yeah, so she was only 19 or 20. Bogart was 25 years her senior, and they started a love affair during To Have and Have Not, uh, which she was probably, you know, eighteen when they were filming that. Kind of weird. Kind of weird. But uh, Bogart, <laughs> different
0: time. It's a different time.
1: N- yeah. Yeah. Still weird. Um, but Bogart was married at the time to his third wife. Dude got around in marriage as well as in <laughs> just and just outside having outside of it yeah. in, within and without within and without. No. No. I mean, like you look at his his relationship history, and it's like. The 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 year that he starts uh, a marriage with his next wife is always the year that he ends a marriage with his previous wife.
0: <laughs> so, are you saying he's always on the lookout for a future ex, Mrs. Malcolm?
1: Something like that, yeah, ex Mrs. Bogart. Um, but anyway, so yeah, they started an affair during To Have and Have Not, and apparently, like because of because of that affair, you know that threw Bogart's uh, relationship into disarray. You know, the the studio was upset with him. He was, you know, falling into alcoholism. Like, he was in a bad way. And when they made this movie, him and Bacall were not together, but they rekindled their love kind of on this this shoot. And that, you know, shortly before this was when he split up with his previous wife. And, you know, during this shoot is basically when he got back with Lauren Bacall. What's crazy about Bacall in this movie is at the time she was kind of, she was flagging a little bit. People weren't sure if she was going to be a star. Like she had, she had a couple of big movies, but she was kind of like waiting for that, that nudge into superstardom basically. You know, it's like, it's like where you get a young actor nowadays and like they have a couple of big hits, but you're like, but are they a real actor or are they like just this, you know, this pretty face, you know, sort of thing. And so this, you know, Jack Warner, the head of Warner Brothers at the time, kind of foisted her on Howard Hawks uh, when he made this movie. Hawks did not want to cast her in this role. When they first filmed this movie, the Carmen character played by Martha Vickers w- actually had a much bigger part and apparently had some knockout scenes.
0: Yeah, so sorry, Carmen's the younger sister, right? Correct. She got a. She always kind of. Plays with her thumb. She's
1: kind of the instigating factor for the whole story of the movie.
0: And she has that uh, one of many sexy intros of a beautiful lady where she's just walking down the stairs with that skirt. It's mm-hmm. like, oh my god, get out of her way. Like well, That is and as, trouble. As
1: Marlo says in the movie, uh, she tried to sit on my lap while I was standing up.
0: Yeah, oh, great line, dude. And how about the dad explaining th- the difference between his daughters, by the way? She's the one where that likes like,
1: to pull wings off flies. Yeah,
0: she's still a child <laughs> who enjoys pulling wings off of flies. God damn, this movie's so fucking good. Man. It's
1: got so yeah, many Anyway, so,
0: so you were saying her her role the the little sister Carmen was originally much bigger
1: was originally much bigger apparently her and Bogart had amazing on-screen chemistry and she was overshadowing Lauren Bacall in the movie as a result uh, some powerhouse agent I don't even know if he was Lauren Bacall's agent at the time and I, I didn't write his name down I should have but he called up Jack Warner when he saw the original cut of the movie and he was like, you got to write more scenes in for, for Bacall and beef her part up because she's getting outshined here and, and it's going to not do wonders for her, her career. And you want her to be this big star. You should add some more scenes. The scene that they ended up adding was the whole casino scene where they have this witty banter where they're basically alluding to fucking each other without saying as much Oh, wait, are you
0: talking about, sorry are you I talking about the restaurant scene where they're like, they're talking about horse racing? And they're well, there's that, about, but I'm saying
1: like okay. there there's the whole sequence of her at the casino where, right. you know, she right, wins right, right. a bunch of money and then they have the fake kind of uh, uh, gunpoint heist at the you know of
0: uh, in the parking lot, yep. exactly. I'm with you. I'm with you. yep.
1: That whole scene was an add-on later that they shot like a year after they made this movie. And and it was just serving to give her more more dialogue, more stuff to do, and and just you know give her more of a part, which is really interesting. And I mean like, you don't see the seams in it; it doesn't feel like no. it's tacked on at dude. all. Which is like, I mean, that's a magic trick in and of itself,
0: dude. As we as we start kind of talking about the the sort of Frankenstein approach to this film, because I heard a little bit about the backstory as well, and it just seems like kind of the old hollywood we hear rumors about of like all these fingers in the pie of like she's gonna be a big star and like all these people like uh, and it almost makes me sad that i like it so much because i really don't like that approach to filmmaking of just like, it's so monetary and like get her in front of the camera. She's the agents calling in favors to the director. Well, it just it's sounds the time like where the, the actors
1: w- were contracted to the studio and actually Lauren Bacall was contracted to Howard Hawks. Like it's, it's like this weird thing where, there was ownership of these actors and they got pushed into projects that they didn't want to do or like, you know, couldn't do other projects because they were with a different studio. It's just a very different time in filmmaking.
0: Yeah, it's just I've, I just find it so surprising that a movie that appears to me to be so organic in a bizarre way and so good was grown from this very sort of like old school fuddy duddy soil. It's like, you know, it's practically salted earth. And yet somehow this like gorgeous flower came from it. It's just pretty, it doesn't make sense.
1: No, no, it's it's weird that so many great movies were were made despite that that crazy system. I may be less off-put by that than you are. I kind of, there's something about the studio system that from that era that is just so fascinating to me that I kind of wish we still lived in that. You know, I, I think it was conducive number one to making a lot more movies, which is kind of kind of interesting. Uh, you know, actors would routinely have you know three, four, or five movies come out in the same year because of that. It's really interesting to look at the studio system and see these moments where creativity and
0: art poked through that that system. Dude, that's that's a really good point. I mean, every movie has to put up with, I'm sure, an absolute assload of bullshit. Even in like a modern day swift running little indie. I bet an A24, which is like a, a production company that is kind of views itself anyway, is very hands off the artist. Um, but I'm still, I'm, I'm sure making any movie is a nightmare. And you make a good point that the fact that this came from that and that you kind of find that charming in a way. It's not off-putting for you. It's like it's it it almost increases its kind of note as like it's just defying all the odds.
1: Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I I don't know where yeah. it is, but there's there's something uh I don't know, there's a part of my brain that romanticizes that, yeah. that era of filmmaking in a way. Before we move off of just the the kind of incarnation and the the gestation of this movie, one thing that I thought was really interesting is that the Raymond Chandler novel is a lot more explicitly sexual and, and dark than this movie. And going back to what I was talking about before about the Hays Code and you know the, the ratings board, for those who don't know, I mean, movies didn't really have ratings for a long, long time. They either passed or they didn't. And the board that oversaw that was uh, formed by a guy named Will Hayes, and he wrote this production code that stated the things that were allowed to be portrayed in film or not allowed to be portrayed in film. There are allusions in the movie, and in the book it's explicit, that the driver character of uh, Geiger, the guy who owns the bookstore who ends up dead, that character is supposed to be gay. And Carol, his driver, is his gay, his, you know, homosexual lover. And the only illusion left in the movie to it is the fact that he has a key to Geiger's house and that, you know, that's the illusion. But, you know, there's all this kind of stuff. Like, the back room of Geiger's store is uh, is supposed to be a smut house that's, like, distributing pornography. And, like, the guy, you know, like, the first time Bogart goes into that bookstore, the guy who kind of, like hides under his hat and sneaks by him to get into the back room is just, it's just a guy going in to buy some porn and, and they don't ever like say that, but it is there.
0: I generally hate the idea of remakes, but this would be one. I would be down to see like a faithful adaptation of the novel set in the same time period, but like embracing the, the realities that the author intended you know, like this kind of this gay relationship that just at the time would have to be hidden to a large degree, if not entirely, even in Los Angeles. Yeah. So like, I, I would really like to see, I don't know, a modern take on it in a way, not that i want them to change this damn thing about this movie.
1: I mean, it's interesting. You say that there actually was a, I don't think you would call it a remake. It's more of a re adaptation of, yeah. Of that, the big yeah. sleep that came out in 1978. Mm. Um, also called the Big Sleep, it stars Robert Mitchum as the Philip Marlowe character. Mitchum's very old at this point, so I, I, I'd be curious to see what they did as far as you know sticking to the the darkness of the novel. Mm-hmm. But that, I mean, that movie that does too. exist. I you know I'd be interested to see it, but it, it doesn't seem like it's very well received. Like like people don't think of it highly. Um, oh. I, I missed this note when we were talking about the delay of the release of this movie. But did you notice that the remnant of uh, the fact that this movie was shot in 1944 in the background of one of these scenes? No. There's a specific well, picture on a wall that indicates when it was shot. Oh, was it versus uh, FDR? when it was
0: released? FDR. Yeah,
1: there's a picture yeah, 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 of yeah. of FDR because he was the president. He was not dead yet when they shot the movie. But by the time the movie came out, he was you know long passed away at that point.
0: still the only three term president we've ever had I believe and probably uh, will only have yeah it's constitutional now but god I want to just when you mentioned the FDR picture I just want to give a quick shout out we're not really in shout outs zone yet but I still got to say it when he first goes to that casino and he starts talking with the casino owner for the first time there's that great picture of the dog behind the the main casino guy oh I don't know if I caught that it's, there's just this picture of, the do- of this, like, like, a hunting dog, you know, like a drawing of, like, a uh, profile of, like, a, a spaniel, you know what I mean? And, it, like, when the guy is fixing them a drink and, like, turns back around to talk to Bogart, he looks so much like the dog to me. and They're, like, in the frame together. So, I don't know. I, I just thought that was kind of a fun thing.
1: I didn't catch that, but you're saying that they look alike.
0: I wouldn't say he like looks like it, but the way it's shot, it's like the similarity is certainly intentional. And this guy turns out to be sort of the one of the principal villains in the film, the casino guy. So, like, I mean, again, like the names come flying so furiously in this movie (laughs) that I can just never remember, except for like Carmen like the names of anybody. And it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter.
1: I had at one point in the movie, I had completely forgotten the name Sean Regan and they kept throwing out Regan, but they never said Sean Regan. Uh, you know, later in the movie, and I was just like, "Who the fuck is this Regan?" And I, I was like looking through the cast list. There's no one named Regan. I'm like, and I, oh, it's like, oh, it's the guy that's not even in the fucking scenes. He's just this alluded to.
0: Yeah, there's just so many goddamn names. Who the fuck are the Knutsons? There's and actually
1: like, someone named Knutson in the credits.
0: I, I saw that. Because I was took <laughs> a picture of it and sent it to you. That a deep gut, big Lebowski reference out there for all those. It was.
1: It's one of me and Jared's favorite little bits from Lebowski, where. Uh, they they reference that this this private eye who's tailing uh, Jeff Lebowski uh, the dude is, the brother uh, Sheamus he's he, <laughs> yeah right exactly he was hired by uh, some family named the Knudsons and and the dude is just like who the fuck are the Knudsons because they yeah, just it's a name that comes out of nowhere dude, he's like who the hell is this now
0: dude as we're talking about it I mean obviously clearly a movie that is. Trying to directly reference this, one
1: hundred percent, like
0: so much, even to the brother Seamus thing and the old man, the old man in a wheelchair, like, like there's so many parallels. And the Coen Brothers, I think, when (laughs) when when Jeff Lebowski delivers that line of "Who the fuck are the Knutsons?" I mean, it's the ultimate like audience surrogate moment because, I mean, we've. We've all seen Big Lebowski so many times to death. I think people forget how confusing that movie is the first couple times you see it. And that is just totally like, I think the voice of what the audience is saying to the Big Lebowski at that point. Just like, who the, who is, who the fuck are the Knutsons, And I honestly wonder if it's what the Cohen brothers are saying to the Big Sleep. Because like, we're just getting peppered with all these names, and it's who just, the fuck like, is Sean who, Regan? Who, who is Regan? Who is this guy? Who are the? Who are the? You know, there's just so many fucking names. You know,
1: it makes me wonder if the Coen Brothers watched this movie and saw the name Knudsen in the credits, and were like, I hope so." We have to use that name. What a weird name!
0: She's not my special lady. She's my fucking lady friend. I'm just helping her conceive, man. Uh, hey, man, I'm not. Who are you that- working for? Lebowski? Huh, Jackie Treehorn? The Knutsons. The who, who, who the fuck are the Knutsons? The, the Knutzes. Earlier in the chat, you mentioned, you know, the direction as one of the qualities in this in this movie. I totally agree. Like, it was one of those chameleon deals for me, where it blended in compl- completely to the story. It disappeared, and it never seemed stodgy to me. It never seemed old fashioned. It didn't seem artificial. It just felt organic and right. All the choices made sense. They told the story visually plainly, even though the story is confusing as fucking balls. It's never confusing visually. You know what I mean? Balls are very confusing. I agree. Balls are a conundrum wrapped in a sack. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's just, um, I don't know. It's just, I've, I don't know if I've seen a bunch of this guy's movies, but I thought it was really uh very impressive and it, it really makes me want to aggressively explore his filmography more
1: no he's he's a filmmaker that inspired and and influenced a lot of modern filmmakers uh, especially in the genre realm um, you know he was one of these studio directors that you know directed a ton of movies I mean he's got 47 director credits on IMDB I'm looking at it right now you know another one of those like Hitchcocky guys who just like made a movie a year kind of thing and yeah he's responsible for a lot of big movies like his girl friday red river you know he worked with uh, john wayne quite a few times so so there's like a lot of that kind of stuff and there's there's a movie in his list that i'm considering for the board at some point i don't even want to say it right now because i don't want to spoil it but it's not not the ones that i've mentioned so far but yeah, he's just, he's a big name in film history. I don't know if he's necessarily a guy who has like a definable style necessarily. Um, again, he's, you know, one of these studio guys, you know, kind of a, a director for hire on some level, but he has a level of artistry and a level of craft there that, uh, you know, you can definitely see shining through. And I think this movie this movie is really well-directed in, in an un- Noticeable way. It's a it's it's a way where he kind of just blends into the scenery, but it's super super effective.
0: I'm just looking at kind of some of his greatest hits of his of his filmography.
1: You don't say. And, it. Don't say the one that I'm
0: going to call out. Uh is it Rio Bravo? Fuck off. <laughs> oh really? I've never seen it. I've never seen it, and I've always wanted to, <laughs> just because.
1: Well, since cool. you spoiled it, I'll say why I'm interested in that movie. That movie <laughs> is a massive inspiration for so many modern movies. It's kind Various. of the original good guys hold up in a in a house and having to uh, deal with like being under siege.
0: It's like an Alamo type of deal. Exactly. Gotcha. Uh, gotcha. Gotcha.
1: So, like, Hawks is a guy that heavily, heavily inspired uh, John Carpenter and mm-hmm. Assault on Precinct Thirteen. Uh, John Carpenter has been really candid in saying that's essentially his remake of Rio Bravo.
0: When I was watching the final season of Better Call Saul, I was listening to the Insider podcast, which is, if, if anyone is watching that show, it's an amazing companion piece where they really talk about the creative process. And Vince Gilligan was just gushing about Rio Bravo and I actually took a screenshot. I think I threw it in my dartboard nominee potential list at some point, and I couldn't remember why. That's awesome! It just came back around. Yeah, I hope I hope you put it on someday, man. I think that'll be so it's cool. A
1: contender for today. I don't. I, now that you spoiled yeah. it, I've got a little chip on my shoulder and don't know oh, if I boy, want to it's put
0: another it on. one. <laughs> it's one of those chippies.
1: Don't like uh, when also, you. I don't
0: like when you spoil
1: it. I like having it be yeah. a reveal. Sorry, sorry.
0: <laughs> I, I was. Oh, I don't know. I know. No, no. no, I know. I also want to say, um, he did direct the original Scarface some people might not know that Scarface the Al Pacino one that was you know more famous to our generation for sure is a retake uh is a remake of this older movie with the same title but Brian De Palma wanted to kind of bring in this sort of Cuban refugee immigrant type of take. yeah to he updated story, really it for cool. modern audiences yeah uh but yeah and then also one of the films um it's called Only Angels Have Wings, and it sounds so much like a Dirk Diggler movie. One
1: <laughs> of angels, what? There are angels in my time.
0: Angels live in my town. which Yeah, I that's, yeah, that's it. But, but it sounds kind of like that sort of movie. For sure, for sure.
1: But yeah, no, Howard Hawks is not a filmmaker that I've seen. I mean, this, I think this is the, the first movie I've seen of his. Uh, but I, I really, really enjoyed it, and it makes me
0: want to see more of his stuff. Dude, I'm right there with you. Right there with you. I got a serious question for you, Drew. Who is the damiest dame in this movie? There are so many dames. We talking like saucy dame? Either any way, any way you want to take the question. But who, who did you personally find the most intoxicating? You were watching this movie, you were like, "Whoa!" Oh, there's a there's a
1: no brainer answer to this question for me, and the answer is Dorothy Malone, who plays the bookstore. Uh, woman, and there's the, the second bookstore, not not the one that uh, Geiger owns. That scene is one of the sexiest scenes I've ever
0: seen put to film. I have never been so turned on from a scene where nobody, there's no physical touching. <laughs> it's crazy. When she it's takes all... her glasses
1: off and lets her hair down, and, and literally Bogey is like,
0: whoa. <laughs> and also, she looked great with glasses too. Let's go. Oh, not 100%. Forget that. Yeah. 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 She's a real convertible of a lady. You know, she looks fantastic either <laughs> way. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think I'm with you, Ben. Like she is so sexy in that scene, and it's all voice, it's all eyes, it's all look, it's all. And it's just so so sexy. Oh, how about the way she she drops the blind down when she's like she locks up the store early? It's like guess we're gonna be closed for the next rest of the afternoon. She almost like slides her body down with. The blind as she's like pulling it down it's just like holy hell what a fox man
1: you know that's that's one of those you know we've we've been putting together our nominees for our dartboard movie night awards which we'll do beginning of next year um to kind of culminate our first year of the show and you know we're, we're going to do an award show where we only uh do awards for the, the movies we watched over the course of the year and one of the categories we've talked about is scene stealers this Performance (laughs) is near the top of that list for me.
0: Yeah, I want to call that category best supporting supporting because it's like someone who's not in the movie much. But I think that is a scene stealer scene, and this is to me, I definitely going to be a contender for best supporting supporting.
1: Yeah, I mean, she's just she fucking knocks it out of the park. Like it's it, you know, it's one of those performances where you're like. You think back on it, and you think that that character had a much bigger part to play in the movie than they did. She's literally in one, one scene, scene, and she one crushes scene. it.
0: Yeah, it's the Alec Baldwin and Glenn Gary Glenn Ross effect. Yeah, where like people have this impression if they haven't seen the movie that Alec Baldwin is like a major character. He's in the movie for one scene, and it is a very it's a shredder of a scene. Mm-hmm. And then he's out. This is kind of in that that league of like just a uh, someone just crushing it, and then just like leaving a mark on my brain but also there are a couple other dames i just wanted to throw little shout outs to there is the gambler guys again i'm not going to give the names who knows who knows these characters names it doesn't matter i think we're
1: talking eddie um, mars we're talking about the proprietor yeah of the, the guy the who gets
0: yeah his wife who is uh next to humphrey bogart when he's hogtied in the living room yeah or the character's name is mona it's played by peggy Knutson. peggy Knudsen. Total dame who, th- oh, and she's a blonde too, yeah, like the Knutsons in like, like, uh, what's that? I Tara Reed.
1: The more we talk about this, it's absolutely what inspired Collins,
0: has to be Knuts, has to be. Uh, another, another dame is that we mentioned her a little earlier, but the cab driver, yeah, who I actually got a lot of vibes from Pulp Fiction. The cab driver in Pulp Fiction, I think, was an homage to this character a little bit. I think you're right, she was a total babe. Every, yeah, it's just I I just think it's I know it's kind of like low, low classy, but I love that the movie is just stuffed with these beautiful women. And that's one of the things Paul Thomas Anderson said about that movie in relation to inherent vice, is like you don't really need to know what's going on. You just want to see what the next thing the pretty girl's gonna do is. Well, and and that and I is think, really the reaction I had to it.
1: I think what's important to note too is that they're not just pretty faces either. They've got character, they've got you yeah. know spice to them. You yes. know, and I think that like you know, it's one thing to to be in, you know, a fucking like episode of Entourage and just throw as many hot women on screen as you possibly totally. can just to make it look pretty. And then there's this where you put these beautiful women on screen and you give them something to do and something to chew on. And it's like, and that makes them 10 times sexier.
0: Yeah. Something to chew on, like a thumb. Like that, like, <laughs> Literally. Like yeah. Carmen. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree. The and... Let's not forget the most important thing: the performances are strong. That's what I mean. Like they're, yeah, yeah, they're not just eye candy. They've got characters that have some depth, like you're saying, something to chew on, and it's the lines are well delivered. They just happen to also be beautiful. You know what I mean? It's like a like a bonus or something. But like the the talent in the acting is the more important thing, and it's it's apparent in all of these roles, big and small.
1: What's uh, what's interesting to contrast that with is kind of how faceless and anonymous a lot of the male characters are, I feel like, in this movie. If I were to give the movie one knock, it's that I don't really... I don't get the power of the villains in this movie or the side male characters because they're kind of just tossed aside throughout most of the movie. The only one that maybe, you know, is an exception to that is Charles Waldron, who plays General Sternwood in the first scene of the movie. I think he has, he has great presence and delivers all of his lines really, really interestingly. But then, you know, you talk about like the guy who plays Eddie Mars, John Ridgley, like I I if you put his face right in front of me right now I don't think I could tell you that's who played Eddie Mars.
0: Are they just are they just outshined by the beautiful women maybe or is it just that they're not super interesting characters to you because I I really liked a lot of those male male characters like I and the performances attached to them. Like I liked the DEA guy that is like Bogart's friend from back in the day. And also it was cool I I kind of grew up with detective stories where the police and the private investigator had a confrontational relationship. It's kind of interesting to see this version where they're they're kind of working together. They like each other. I, I haven't seen that too many times. But something about that DEA guy I really liked. Uh, also, was in one of the best lines of the movie. You're talking Bogart.
1: Chief Inspector Bernie Oles is the character's name?
0: Yeah, he, like, he tells Bogart about the car they found in the yep. ocean and they go down and check it out. He, he comes back in a couple of different scenes and...
1: There's a similar character in in a lonely place, actually. Like the yeah, the that's a good kind point. of uh, police officer that's friends with with uh, the Humphrey Bogart character, and kind of, you know, he he brings him in in a friendly way. You know, he brings him down to the station, and he's like, "Nah, come on, we got it. We got to go answer some questions now." Like this kind of thing. But you, they're clearly friends. Um, this character I f- has a lot of similarities to that, in in my opinion. But like you said, like is not is not getting in the way of the Bogart character. He's, if anything, he's helping
0: him. He's adding, yeah, he's adding to it. And Bogart's line, when he shows up at the guy's office later, he's like, don't you know better than to wake a man up at two o'clock in the afternoon? Killed me, great line. Great, great line, but that guy was in that scene. Uh, and then I do really like the casino guy. Like I, I, I he's menacing. Especially I his- I don't. I don't have
1: a problem with these characters. I just I feel like they they don't have the spark on screen that a lot of the female characters do.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. I just think I was so enamored with that first when when the what is the character's name by the way the casino guy? His name's Eddie Mars. Eddie Mars. Yeah, when Eddie Mars the casino guy first shows up. And they have that, he like threatens to call the police and Bogart's kind of like, go ahead. And that scene is where the the pays too small line, which is another barn burner of a line, is in there. I really enjoy his, their spar, their jousting they have. They're sizing each other up. They're trying to figure out the motivations, all that shit. And I really like their scenes together. Um, But I get what you're saying too. They're just not as electrifying as a lot of these female performances.
1: I think something we could talk about as an offshoot of that that's really interesting is to think about the fact that this movie was co-written by a woman, which is very unique for the time. I mean, not not very, well, I shouldn't say very unique, but it's definitely like not common at the time for that to be the case. One of the co-writers of this was Lee Brackett, um, who frequently worked with John Hawks and, and uh, actually was in some ways a, a collaborator of William Faulkner, who is also one of the co-writers of this movie. Uh, People would know William Faulkner as one of the great literary giants of of the 20th century. A lot of people don't know that Faulkner also had kind of a side gig as a screenwriter and did a lot of uncredited
0: rewrites throughout his his career as a writer. Oh, right. Wasn't that character similar in Barton Fink? There was that legendary writer... Who, like? I uh, want to say
1: that that's who it's inspired by.
0: Yeah, I think it's. I think that's exactly because he's P. like Mayhew. a southern. Yeah, Mayhew. He's like a southern guy. He's a south south. <laughs> but, <laughs> but to go
1: back to Lee Brackett, I mean, Lee Brackett is one of the great female writers in Hollywood history, and she actually wrote *The Empire Strikes Back*.
0: Oh my God! What a beast! What a beast! And who knew? I mean, I'm I'm sure there's a shared responsibility with the dialogue empire strikes back is not really known for its dialogue outside of i know but um which was a, that, an improv on the set which just an improv yeah
1: but but i mean she's responsible for the structure of that film like yeah. it going into darker territory like like she i mean she, I, george lucas definitely drove a lot of that but mm-hmm. i mean she deserves a lot of credit for bringing for that sure into, into fruition there
0: but what's cool is we get to see this side of her writing style, too, which is so different. This is this is Puzzle Box ratatat.
1: Well, and, and- since we've already uh, spoiled one of my potential choices for the board, I'll spoil another potential, which is uh, another Philip Marlowe story from 1973, though, with Elliot Gould in the main character. It's The Long Goodbye, directed by Robert Altman. So that's another one I'm, th- I'm tossing around. And she wrote that.
0: Oh, dude, that would be a really cool one because I am criminally underseen on Altman. I have not seen that movie. And I mean, you know, we're not there yet, but I I would be down. For, I'd be very excited for that one because it seems organic. It seems like and it seems like a good tether to this, but well, you know, it'll
1: be your call. All right. Well, and, and I'll just spoil the other one that I'm considering because I, I for some reason I'm 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 feeling this noir vibe so much from watching this movie. And I'm so excited about it that there's. Something something in me that wants to put something like this on the board. And the other one I'm tossing around would be another Bacall and, and Bogart movie, which is Key Largo that I've heard is amazing.
0: Yeah. I mean, dude, this movie has gotten me hot and bothered in more ways than one. Yes, the dames, but it's gotten me horny for noir. Like, like we're gonna have literally like
1: we're gonna have a Jared's Dame section in the yeah.
0: awards. We're gonna have a Dame of the Year for sure, um, and and you know it's like it's kind I don't of know like if that's d-
1: politically correct at this point, but who cares? Oh, Dame, we could
0: say, du- say Dame, Dame, Dame Judy Dench. Um, yeah, no, it's just like <laughs> I don't like, think
1: that's the same usage, but sure.
0: Yeah, I think it's um, it's like a fun alternative to top brutes. You yeah. know, like not not every movie has a top brute, uh, but uh, almost every movie has a top Dame, except for Glengarry Glenn Ross. But yeah, I was I'm like horny for detective stories after seeing this movie like literally i was sad that we were recording today because i was like i really wanted to just dive right into both chinatown and inherent vice and just check back in with these beloved detective stories watch new ones i'm gonna strangle you save them for the board save them for the board that's where the new ones go but yeah i mean it's just it really got me in the mood for noir
1: 100% no it got me so excited and I was like it 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 really like re-sparked my love of of the noir genre and like I'm you know I'm gonna go back and and watch at least three or four of these over the next month just because I'm like I I, yeah like you're saying I'm horny for it I'm so I'm so excited by by this movie that I want to dive into more of that
0: yeah dude you um you had mentioned obviously some of the chaotic stuff behind the scenes of this movie and how it sat on the shelf for so long and Scenes were changed. I wanted to just underline one specifically: that great, great scene in the restaurant. Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall are like really flirting hard. Like she's got that glove, and she's like, uh, he like goes to grab her hand. She hands him the glove. They talk about horse racing, all that sort of stuff. That scene in the in the original version that was like due to be released is like in the office that they have that fun phone game in and it's so condensed and doesn't have like any of those the romantic flares and elements to it. It's so much worse. I'm so so glad they reshot it and reimagined it. Yeah. It's cuz it's a really great scene where like we're seeing these characters romantically get closer and closer and closer together and then he takes a step back and kind of calls her on like what game is she playing sort of thing. And they kind of st- they kind of stagger out of the love they're parading towards in that moment. Just a great, great scene. They're both exceptional in it. They really are. And I kind of mentioned too that phone call scene. I, I love that scene where she starts to call the police and he takes the phone and they hand it back and forth. To like and and just fuck with these cops on the other end of the line, mm-hmm. that scene is awesome. It's really absolutely fun. awesome.
1: So if I can give you one recommendation off of this movie, please. You know th- this might be a nominee for the cram it down your gullet award at the end of the year of the movie that we <laughs> we just force each other to watch because like I'm so tired of asking you to watch it. I'm not tired of asking you to watch this one yet because I, have, I don't think I've asked you to before, but after watching this, I, this is gonna be one that I know I'm gonna be like harping on for you. Please, please watch Double Indemnity. It's one of my favorite filmmakers, Billy Wilder, written by Raymond Chandler. It has the same rat-a-tat awesome dialogue that this does and even more atmosphere and mood. I, I like it a little bit more than this one, even though I loved this one. But double indemnity is a fucking masterpiece. And everyone listening to this, if you're into noir, go watch that.
0: So if I'm if I'm horny for noir, that's a good place to that would to be the follow. first place I'd send you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude. That sounds that sounds intriguing. I'll watch it next year.
1: <laughs> Anything else we want to wrap up the big sleep with?
0: Yeah, I got a couple of things I wanted to mention. Additional things, I guess I should say. We talked a lot about Lauren Bacall and, you know, she is really, really good in this movie. Particularly that scene where she's at the casino singing along with that like acapella band. I don't know quite know what you would style of music you would call that. And her and Humphrey Bogart are just exchanging those looks across the crowded room I just love that scene. And I love her in it, particularly. I love the way they wave to each other. We were talking in the pre-chat just about visual storytelling. And that, to me, is just such a visual scene. It's all about... I mean, there's nothing being said other than the words of the song she's singing. Just so much is expressed in these actors' faces, in their posture, uh, and the way they're looking at each other. It's great. And they have that awesome wave and then like she kind of sees the attractive ladies like next to Bogart. And he kind of does a playful look at her and then back to Bacall. call. I was like, yeah, pretty good. Right. And it's just like the, 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 the game they're playing is that was my favorite time. It was expressed in the film. I think in terms of their sort of, they're, they're seducing each other and their approach to it. Um, that, 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 that scene just really stuck out to me. It's just a great one.
1: Absolutely. Um, any standout lines from the movie that you, you want oh to highlight? Oh my
0: god, the whole movie is a standout line, dude. Honestly, uh, I mentioned the two. Don't you know better than wake wake a man up at two in the afternoon? Also, that that the the that office is lit really well. It's clearly the afternoon by the way the sun is like coming in. It's so funny when he's having that first interaction with a casino guy. And the story didn't sound quite right. And then Humphrey Borger is just like, oh, that's too bad. You got a better one? And it's just like, I just love this, the lines, dude. They're so good.
1: Well, there, there's the back and forth with him and Eddie Mars when uh, they're at Geiger's house. And Eddie goes, convenient, the door being open when you didn't have a key, eh? Marlo's like, yeah, wasn't it? By the way, how'd you happen to have one? Is that any of your business? I could make it my business. I could make your business mine. Oh, you wouldn't like it. Pays
0: too small. Pays too small, <laughs> and again, we're talking snap, 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 F- rapid, rapid fire, and it's pretty much like an Abbott and, and Costello bit mm-hmm. in 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 a way, you know. And it's it seems really like that style of comedy was very influential to things that I adore, like Seinfeld and things like that. Yeah,
1: no, there's a there's so many. I'm like looking through the the IMDb quote section right now, and it's like there are ones that I didn't even pick up on watching the movie because. They like stuff is coming at you so rapid fire, but it, you know, you read it and it's like, God, that's such well-constructed dialogue. I love it.
0: It's some of the best I have ever heard. I also wanted to give a shout out to the way they handle phone calls in this movie. I found fascinating. We never see the other side of these calls. So often in movies, someone picks up the phone, hello, and it cuts to what's going on on the other end of the line. I kind of like that we didn't have that here. It just, it's, the camera stays with Bogart's. I don't know, I found it more interesting in a way. And, and since the movie is so unashamedly confusing, and it's not annoying me that it's confusing, like a lot of times he's like picking up the phone, you just hear a little bits and pieces of the voice coming from the other end. Oftentimes I can't even really tell who it is that he's talking to, because he's just dropped some name that should mean something to me, but it doesn't. But again, it just doesn't It doesn't bother me. And I just like that we're not cutting all over the place, back and forth to the other side of the phone. And a lot of bizarre choices with phone calls in general in this movie, like, do you remember that scene where he's at the diner, like drinking coffee, and he, and he heads to the payphone, he calls the... I can't think of the family's name that he's working for. The, the Sternwoods. The Sternwoods. He calls the Sternwoods on that payphone, and and the the butler guy is like, oh, she really wants to talk to you. The, the movie takes that beat to have him walk over to the waitress and ask for a match, get a match, and kind of slowly return to the phone, and we hear Mrs. Sternwood on the other end of the line as the phone is sitting them there, kind of like frantically trying to get his attention and you know i'm watching this there's certain anxiety i feel as just a modern human about like a phone call being neglected and like i mean for me a phone call is often like work related and it's like you blow it on a phone call it's like loss loss of income or whatever so i just see that moment and i'm like is he gonna miss the call is he not gonna get the information he needs and of course it's fine like he gets he has the conversation fully but it's such a strange choice i think because that moment doesn't really add anything to the film or the story other than we see another pretty girl with a book of matches but i just find it so weird that the movie takes that beat to have them just slowly walk over get a light return to the phone like a lot of really cool choices like that in this movie that i was just like again like you're saying it's a it's an intoxicating vibe the whole fucking thing and um God, god, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, I
1: think we both did and I think we can both wholeheartedly recommend this movie for anybody to go watch, even modern day audiences. This movie is just electric. Shall we get something new on the board there?
0: Yes, dude. So you've kind of dropped in a, in a in a in a in a new way, you've kind of teased it throughout the episode. So you've got a couple kicking around. You want to recap them again? I, I kind of forget what they My were.
1: hand was somewhat forced, but, you know. Yeah, it's... by me
0: reading the words Rio Bravo. <laughs> just...
1: <laughs> but, yeah, no, it's, I've definitely got a few that I'm, I'm tossing around here. So the ones that I've considered that I've mentioned on the show so far, we've talked about Rio Bravo. We talked about The Long Goodbye. We talked about Key Largo. Those are kind of my three main contenders. I think I'm gonna just I'm I'm gonna pick from that bunch. Just we've we've set it sure. up. Let's do it. Let's do it. In the interest of diversity of the board, I'm gonna go with Rio Bravo because we're we're missing some older flicks on there. I think you know. I mean, we've got stuff down to like the you know 60s and 70s, but you know this is this is in the 50s. It's a movie that inspired a lot of our favorite filmmakers and, and you know, has, you know, it, it's a movie that's referenced in the same way that, you know, we've talked about like stuff like Rashomon, where it's like the name of the movie has kind of become synonymous with the genre in a way. Rio Bravo is that way for this like under siege, good versus evil kind of story. I don't know. I'm just, I'm fascinated with it. I, I've, I don't think I've ever seen an image from it like just like a screenshot. So I don't really have like a picture in my head of what this movie looks like as opposed to the long goodbye, which I have a
0: lot of images in my head of. So I don't know. I just, I'm feeling Rio Bravo. Let's put it up. Dude. I, I love everything you said about that choice. Like I completely agree. Let's get some more older films on there. I also know nothing about it other than the Vince Gilligan recommendation. I don't I can't I don't know who's in it. I can't picture a poster, a shot, anything. And I love that it's one neither of us have seen. Yeah, I think it's a great choice, dude. All
1: right. Well, Rio Bravo is going in at number 4. Let's recap the board now as it sits as we go into throwing the new dart. Number one, You Can Count on Me. Number two, Ex Machina. Number three, The Right Stuff. Number four, Rio Bravo. Number five, Operation Condor. Number six, Anomalisa. Number seven, Amadeus. Number eight, Pi. Number nine, Days of Heaven. Number 10, The Limey. Number 11, The Hateful Eight. Number 12, The Straight Story. Number 13, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Number 14, The Karate Kid. Number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Number 16, Dirty Harry. Number 17, The Blair Witch Project. Number 18, Waking Life. Number 19, Strange Days. And number 20, The... The Terminator.
0: The Terminator. I'll just All say right. quickly, I am cheering for the right stuff. Okay. Interesting. I'm gonna aim for a bullseye too. I think that could be fun as well. I'm gonna go I'm gonna throw a righty, aim for the bullseye, and we're gonna see what we're gonna get. Let's do it. Drew the Dart has spoken.
1: What's it got this week? Two. Number two is Ex Machina. We're going to another dartboard original.
0: Dude, so does that mean there's only two left after next week? Holy shit, another OG.
1: The only two remaining after next week will be Days of Heaven at number nine and The Straight Story at number 12. Those are the only numbers we haven't hit so far.
0: Dude, that is... Uh, the dwindle continues. It's 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 a complicated emotions floating around, but... Yeah, this is one I have. I just missed when it came out. A lot of, of my friends speak about it very highly. I don't know. I know it's sci-fi. I know it's bizarre. Excited to check it out. Also kind of cool that it's a much more current film than the one we just covered. I love when the board kind of jumps around to different times like this. So, yeah, that's well, one I'm curious to check out for sure, man.
1: Yeah, no, it's uh, the 2014 film by Alex Garland, also stars Donald Gleason and the electric Alicia Vikander. She is so good in this movie, so I'm excited to watch it for that. Um, Yeah, really, really great flick and uh, one that I haven't rewatched since it came out, so interested to give it a rewatch and see if it holds up for me.
0: Looks like Ex Machina is, at time of recording anyway, currently available on HBO Max. You could paid rent from a variety of places as well, you know, your Amazons, your your iTunes and whatnot. So shouldn't be hard to track down if it's a movie like me that you haven't seen and yeah, should be should be a fun week next week.
1: Absolutely. That'll do it tonight for our episode on The Big Sleep. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Please remember to rate, review, and give us a follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. If you want to keep in touch or give us a recommendation, drop us a line at dartboardmovienight at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at dartboardmovienight. night. Artwork for the show was created by Veronica Roman, and all of our music is by
0: Eric Williams. Play us out there, Eric. Sorry, Mark. Later.